Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, I talk to the amazing Sparks Brothers, yes, Russell and Ron Mayle, from the band Sparks about their incredible new documentary, The Sparks Brothers. On the week that Robin Williams will have turned 70, we pay a special tribute to the wonderful comedian and actor. Plus, the one and only Mario Rosenstock chats to me about his favourite movie and a lot more besides. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk, of course, for the last couple of weeks. And this week it's on at 9pm because of the Lions Tour. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. Hope you've enjoyed this sensationally hot weather. I know I certainly have. You know, we spend our summers going, oh, it was really warm. It was, it was kind of like Italy or Spain. And you never really believe that. You say it, but it's kind of this, you know, futile hope. It's never quite that warm. But it was this week. It did actually feel like Italy or Spain. I was sitting at the back of my sister-in-law's garden with my kids in a paddling pool. They were being supervised. And it did actually feel like we were on the continent. So I think for the first time in my life, it did actually feel like Ireland had the temperature of Spain or Italy. So I do hope you enjoyed it as well and you wore sunscreen because that is very important. Now, in movies, I was watching this this week. Welcome, King James. I am the king of this domain. This is the serververse. What'd you do to my son? Where's Dom? The only way you're getting your son back is if you and I play a little basketball. Pete, send this clown to the rejects. Wait. What is this? I'm a cartoon? What's up, Doc? I need to assemble an elite team to help get my son back. I know what you're looking for. A dream team. Man, shoot the ball. Let's try that again, shall we? Yes, now that is Space Jam and New Legacy, which landed in cinemas last Friday. This, as you may know, is kind of a standalone sequel to Space Jam, the original movie, which had Michael Jordan, the basketballer, and all the Looney Tunes playing a game of basketball. This is a very similar story, but this time LeBron James, that incredible basketball player. Well, I hear he's an incredible basketball player. I know very little about him, I have to say. And it's a very similar movie in that for very convoluted reasons, he has to play a game of basketball in this weird kind of parallel universe and there's these wonderful opponents against him who are well they're not really wonderful they're horrible people but they're great basketball players and he invokes the Looney Tune characters like Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck who you heard there to play with him Uh, and it's very similar to the other movie I mean the animation is a bit different and the animation is modernized it's not that good though I'm sorry to say it's kind of charmless Uh, LeBron James as I say by all accounts is a wonderful basketball player but he's not an actor and he's missing the kind of charm that Michael Jordan had in the original Space Jam and there's a good thing in this where Warner Brothers pay a lot of tribute to their own back catalogue and when you're watching the basketball game there's characters from Harry Potter and Game of Thrones there and that's fun but that was kind of it I mean the Looney Tune bits are fun when Bugs and Daffy Duck are giving it socks but I was just left thinking 
why don't I just watch Looney Tunes if I want to see them? Because the rest of it didn't really work. Don Cheadle, who's a great actor, is good in it, playing this guy who's in charge of this serververse where this basketball game has to happen and he's this kind of computer algorithm who takes on a life of its own and he's good in it but on the whole it's kind of a thumbs down for me I watched it with the kids they seem to enjoy it when I drilled down a bit I'm not sure how much they did actually enjoy it it, it looks good but uh, I wasn't that impressed sorry to say now something I was wildly impressed by was this Throughout all the years that I've been making music, if you get on a tour bus with a bunch of musicians, eventually the conversation will go to Sparks. I remember just seeing them all the time, like, who are those guys? They are a band who you can look up on Wikipedia and know nothing. We are Sparks, dude. Please welcome Sparks! Sparks! Frequently asked questions about Sparks. How many albums are there? 25 albums. Are you brothers? We are brothers. How did you first meet? We are brothers. Music at its best, you hear it and you go, oh my God, what is that? It's insane, but it's fantastic. Each time you'd go to the rehearsal, there'd be something new there. Like, that's good. It wasn't like anything else. All pop music is rearranged Sparks. That's the truth. Yes, now that is a clip from a new documentary coming to cinemas next week, uh, the 29th of July, and it tells the story of Sparks. Now listen to me. If you know who Sparks are, you know, you're like, you don't need to explain that to me. But the thing is, half the world don't know who Sparks are. Sparks are this incredible band who've been on the go for 50 years. People who do know them will tell you that they're made up of two brothers. There are other musicians, but at their core are two brothers, Russell and Ron Mayle. Ron Mayle famously has this very small, almost Charlie Chaplin moustache. He tends to sit at a keyboard when they're on stage. Russell is a bit more outgoing, more of a live wire stage presence. And they have done all sorts of music. I suppose a lot of it's electric pop, but that's kind of limiting it because they have done everything. They've tried hard rock. They've tried every kind of music imaginable, really, in their own inimitable way. You heard some of the famous voices in the clip there. In this documentary, you have everyone from Flea of the Red Hot Chili Peppers to Mike Myers, uh, the actor, talking about how much they love Sparks. And what's incredible about Sparks is their career has been all over their place. They're two unusual brothers, very sweet brothers, but they are unusual in that They've spent their life just wanting to make music. They've wanted to be successful, but more than that, they've wanted to make music. That fulfills them, and they've certainly done that. And they have had ups and downs like no other band have had before. They flirted with the movie business. They were big in Germany. They weren't so big in the States. They were big in Japan, to ape that famous phrase. They made music videos. They had kind of third act where the world almost caught up with them. People claim they've invented electric pop, which you can kind of see the logic in, particularly when you watch this documentary. Their story is incredible. And this documentary is incredible by Edgar Wright because it doesn't follow the normal. They became famous, then... They got addicted to stuff. Then they had seven ex-wives. It's not that standard kind of rock documentary, which why I watch all the time, which I have no problem with. But this is all sorts of flourishes and 
strange narrative storytelling to it. It is a sheer delight. One of the best music documentaries I've seen in a long time. Long story short, I got to talk to the two brothers who make up Sparks. That's Russell and Ron. Earlier in the week, it was a Thursday afternoon. Ron joined the interview about 30 seconds into it. So you'll hear me welcoming him. Have a listen to the Sparks brothers chatting to me. I have watched a lot of music documentaries over the years. And, you know, there tends to be a beginning, middle and end and people are successful and then there's tragedy and then there's depression and drink and alcohol and divorces and all. Hello, Ron. Nice oh, to hi, see you hi, as well. Yeah, yeah. I was just saying that this documentary doesn't follow that. I had no idea if you guys were married, if you had children. There's nothing about your private life apart from your parents. And not that I care. I didn't want to know any of that stuff because it's the music I'm interested in. But was that part of the appeal for you guys that it wasn't going to be drugs, depression and all that kind of usual stuff? Well, I mean, that was something that was even a, a concern of ours. And we discussed it with Edgar and we were completely excited that he had proposed doing a documentary about Sparks because we're big fans of his films. But we mm -hmm. said precisely what you had just addressed saying, well, you know, we don't have the typical career arc or situation of most fans. We don't, we didn't have the drug overdose. We didn't have the, uh, you know, uh, any kind of, uh, you know, abusive situations in our, in our lives that, and then we, as a result of that, we did uh, music that reflected, you know, what we were going through at that time. We said, are we, are we interesting enough to have a documentary made about us? And he said, he said, I assure you, <laughs> you're, you're interesting enough. And, and, uh, and when you, when this documentary is finished, you're going to have even more mystique than you had before it. So, so we said, okay, well, we'll, we'll uh, go ahead and do this then. And Ron, it, it seems like a silly question. It's like asking, is water wet? But are you happy with the documentary? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the, the main, the main thing was that when we first saw it, we, 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 we saw it when we didn't see it as it was being done, but we saw it when it was complete. We wanted to kind of stay out of it as far as Edgar putting it together because we have su such faith in him as a filmmaker. But we were we were really hoping that it would be an Edgar Wright film with all mm -hmm. the kind of uh, you know kinetic kind of feel and and stylistic kind of quirks that that his narrative films had. So we you know we we were we couldn't have been more pleased when we saw it that that it kind of is in a way all over the map in a sense and and also really uh energetic and high powered and and uh just uncompromising and because that that was our that was our only fear that this would be toned down in some sense mm. and uh it, it's not I promised myself I'd never use the pretentious phrase meta in an interview, but I'm afraid you've driven me to it because at one point you both kind of go, this is like something out of a musical biopic <laughs> as you're taking part in kind of a musical biopic. Are those the kind of flourishes that you wanted Edgar to put into the documentary? Because he seemed to put loads of them in. Well, we, we, we had hoped that it would be uh like an, an Edgar documentary where it's kind of infusing a lot of different elements that kind of reflect not only his style, but reflect Spark's style of how our music is and how we are as image wise and all that. So, so whenever there was a juxtaposition of different, you know, elements within the film and there's animations all of a sudden enter the film 
that are, are being used when there wasn't maybe uh, archival film yeah. to represent a certain situation. All of that kind of the hodgepodge sort of effect is something that's really appealing to us. And it's kind of, you know, in our music, we tend to be kind of all over the map. And, and, and we love that Edgar and his in the documentary is sort of all over all over the map with stylistically with throwing mm. in elements and tidbits of different things here and there and having various different artists speaking about their their love for the band and just this kind of mixture of, of elements we really think it um, makes it a, an interesting documentary. Yeah, there are so many moments in your career that I could talk to you about for hours, but you know, we have 10 minutes or whatever it is, but can I just ask you a couple? One in particular, and it's probably my favorite song of yours, and it's, When Do I Get to Sing My Way? And I'm wondering, is, is that the song people talk to you the most about? If you had to pick, I mean, you've had so many songs, it's like 300 songs just about. Is that the one that you're asked the most about? Well, I, I mean, I don't know. We It, it depends on the audience person, the, the, the person the, the if you country. if you had to do an average <laughs> yeah on average well i mean it's amongst them it's in the yeah. uh maybe in the top five yeah no it's yeah. it's one that and i mean it's it's also um you know it's not a song from the 70s period of of sparks as well so we we kind of prefer things that are it's not recent now that song but it, it's it's um more in the uh you know, in the, the second second or third wind of sparse yes. that where that song comes from, and it's it's a song that's really important to us because it was a song that kind of came out of nowhere um, when there was sort of a less visibility of the band at that time, and then all of a sudden we came back with this song, and and particularly in Germany it was a really massive hit, and so we were it kind of then had we all of a sudden we found we have this new young audience following Sparks again. And it was really peculiar to us that at that point in our careers, we could uh, be doing something that would elicit that kind of response. Yeah. And then Ron, in one of the moments in the, 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 the long checkered career, Paul McCartney does you in a video along with other people. And what I really liked in the movie is, you, you know, you weren't being cool about it. You seemed genuinely thrilled that Paul McCartney had impersonated you in a music video, were you? I was, yeah. I mean, I should have said, oh, I don't care, but <laughs> it's, a, it's a goddamn Beatle doing a impersonation yeah. of you. So, so it was, it was really flattering because you know, obviously, having him doing impersonations of Buddy Holly and other mm. uh, other musicians, and to choose me, I mean, I, I, you know, probably am more recognizable in, in some kind of, kind of cartoonish way than other keyboard players might be. But whatever the reason he chose to impersonate me in, in the coming up video, I was, you know, I was, I was ecstatic. I'm not, I'm not cool enough to <laughs> say I don't care. Yeah. I'm, and I'm jealous, so. Yeah, yeah, right, rightly so. And, you know, you talk about the, the many wins of your career and that there was all these different phases. The little or little Beethoven period seems to have been, is it your sense that that was the time maybe, like Paul Simon, I think it said was, you know, there's music and then there's the music business. And I'm wondering, was that the time in your career when maybe the music business or the public 
caught up with what you were doing. Did you feel that was a full circle moment in your career? It was that the little the little Beethoven album was really important for us because we really felt that we had kind of gone as far as we could in a creative way with what we were doing up until that time. And we had had a, a quite a few songs ready for what would have been that album at that time. And we, we kind of didn't feel any passion for them the same way that we might have felt in the past for, for songs, not because of the quality, but just the nature of them being done in the same kind of way that we'd worked before. And so we just really tried to reinvent ourselves with a little Beethoven album as much as we could, kind of doing away with traditional rhythm and even a band sound and mm. just trying to see how we could reinvent the combination of what a band in, in not in a traditional sense, but just in a general sense could be. And so, you know, we're, we're really proud of, of the little Beethoven album because I think it, it kind of really spurred us on from in the years after that to know that, that we still could find kind of escape routes from, from kind of habits that we've gotten into in the past. So it, it was a really important album for us. Yeah, yeah, and a great album as well. You know, there's, I keep mentioning other musicians, but you know, they always say when you interview Bruce Springsteen, don't ask him why he's called the boss. And you know, why did Billy Joel divorce Christy Brinkley? There's just things, you know, but I'm not cool enough not to do that. And that what comes across in the documentary with you guys is that you're brothers, but you get on tremendously well. And it's like your relationship I don't know, you're having the last laugh on the world because despite what people think of it, it clearly works. I mean, I, I'm sorry it's not a very cool question, but you seem to genuinely love and like each other's company. Is that a fair assessment on a Thursday afternoon? <laughs> uh, I, it, it is a fair assessment. Um, you know, and we, I think that's what's kept Sparks going all of this time and, and continuing to go in the future is that we both, kind of have this, um, we see eye to eye on what we should be doing musically and there's not a conflict in that way and our roles don't overlap. And, and, and I think that it's, I mean, obviously it's really unique in pop music that that is the case because there's all the other brothers acts where it hasn't been as <laughs> amiable amongst them. But I think that's also what's kept Sparks having, um, you know, 25 albums and more yeah. on the way is that we we get along really well and we get along well musically and 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 both have the same kind of um inspiration to want to be doing music that's really provocative in its own sort of way yeah wonderful well i have to wrap now and as i wrap i just want to say i'm reading great reviews about the movie you finally got to screen in can and net which you did the music for i presume you're thrilled with the reception it seems to be getting from the limited number of people who've seen it yeah yeah it's been an amazing experience i'm just very briefly yeah we we were at can for the last two weeks where it premiered as the opening film and it won two awards at can we uh for the director leos carax and also for the soundtrack which we did and so we you know we couldn't be more thrilled that after you know all of this time uh, now we have a a movie that's opened the Cannes Film Festival and got such positive response. So we can't wait for it to come out here. Um, I think it's coming out soonish. I think, I don't know if it's the end of this month or beginning of next month, but in any case, soonish it will be out here. And it's a really, in the same way that Sparks Music is really uncompromising, this film is a really 
uncompromising movie musical that's starring Adam Driver mm. and Marion Cotillard, and they, they both give these amazing performances in it. So we can't wait for everybody to, to get to see it. Well, I can't wait to see it. Listen, the world is waiting to talk to you, so I better let you go. Thanks a million for talking to me, guys. You're welcome. Yeah. Oh, yes. The highlight of my week, if not the month, talking to Russell and Ron Mayle from the band Sparks. And they're the stars, of course, of the new, their own documentary, The Sparks Brothers, which is in cinemas next Thursday, the 29th of July. It's a brilliant music documentary. It really is. I was going around the office yesterday and... There was only half the office who'd ever heard of Sparks, but the people who had, including my old mucker, Tom Dunn, was like, you're talking to Sparks, that's great. Uh, So if you know Sparks, you will love this documentary. You absolutely will. And if you don't know who Sparks are, I think you'll also love this documentary. So check it out. Uh, And they also have a movie in Cannes, as you heard me say at the end there, uh, that they wrote the music for, uh, which stars Adam Driver called Annette, which I'm looking forward to seeing. Now, this week, Robin Williams would have been 70. And up next, we pay a special tribute to Screen Time on News Talk. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and movie show. You can tweet me, John underscore Fardy. You can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. If you're listening on the radio, we're coming to you a bit later this week because of the Lions coverage. Now, this week, Robin Williams would have been 70. Yes, it's hard to believe. And and uh, I wanted to do something a little different on the show this week because I absolutely adored that man as both a comedian and an actor. And from correspondence I get to this show, I know a lot of people feel the same. Social media was full of tributes to him all week. I saw a lot of them. People just adored Robin Williams because... He was funny, but he had a kind of sensitivity and a humanity that just seemed to have spoken to people. And I'll never forget the day hearing that he passed away. Let's celebrate him, though. Uh, Over the years, I've done all sorts of packages and profiles of actors for all sorts of shows. And I wanted to bring you again one I did about Robin Williams a few years ago. I think it was on the Pat Kenny show. It was a series I was doing looking at some great comedians and actors. And uh, with your permission... I'd like to bring you this little special tribute, a recorded a little while ago, to the great Robin Williams. Nano, nano. Before I read the poetry to you, I wish to teach you one phrase in Russian in case you ever go to Soviet Union. It's necessary to know this phrase. Frabi Akadim Gulashots. Why am I under arrest? Okay. Robin Williams famously played a man from outer space in a 1970s TV show. When he tragically died, it was that character that was regularly referred to, seeming to explain his almost otherworldly comic genius. It's nice to be in your country. It's nice to fly over here. You flew over in a small plane. Well, actually, a large plane with a band who basically talked over the loudspeaker like, Uh, hi, this is your pilot. I uh, just want you to know there's a little static there. Don't be afraid. Uh, before we take off, I'd just like you to know, uh, my wife left me. I'm not feeling too good about myself. <laughs> Let's get this plane off the ground and see what happens, okay? Usually in the stories of these great comedians, we start to hear tales of childhood hardships. Williams didn't want for anything financially, as his father was an executive in the automobile industry. His mother was also present, but appears to have been a distant figure in some ways. He recounted to Billy Connolly's wife, Pamela Stevenson, on a TV show called Shrink Rap, how he was raised mostly by a black nanny. I was pretty much raised by a, a black maid named Susie, who was very sweet. I had the attic to myself, 
which was supposedly the black maid thought was haunted. There's haints there, Mr. Williams. It was pretty much just me. And occasionally she had a son that she would bring over and he would play with me, but it was alone a lot. And then Why went off to that? school. Why? Why? Because no one else lived nearby. And it was pretty, uh, because my father was working in the automobile industry, you know, he was off and my mom was there, but pretty lonely on that level. Your mom level. was there. She was there. I mean, she would, you know, but I was on my own pretty much most of the time. But he was forgiving of his mother. Later on, he would tell Robert Lipton in the actor's studio that he kind of credits her with starting his whole comedy routine. Oh, for my mom especially. And that was what both of Oh, big time. Just to get breastfed was a really important thing. <laughs> I remember going, is this thing on? <laughs> no. I think basically it was. I mean, but my mother had this poem that she told me when I was about nine. Um, yeah. Maybe eight. What was it? Shut up, let me finish. <laughs> I love you in blue, I love you in red, but most of all, I love you in blue. And so at that point, I kind of went, okay. And then I tried to, you know, find things that would make her laugh, doing voices or anything that would kind of, you know, get a response out of her. After school, he went to college, and somewhat strangely from this vantage point, he studied political science, but dropped out to study acting. He won a scholarship to the famed Juilliard School of Performing Arts in New York, but something strange happened when he was there. Here's Stephen J. Spinezzi, author of the Robin Williams scrapbook. Well, actually, a teacher told him that Juilliard couldn't teach him anything. I always loved that story because he went there and he was thinking, acting, music, whatever, uh, and then fi- and he had been doing a lot of improvs and stand-up stuff and just this freewheeling riffing on anything that came to his mind. And all of a sudden, the school said to him, we're, we're, we can't teach you anything. <laughs> Go out, achieve, act, be on stage, whatever, because the point is the genius was present instantly. Williams, although ostensibly wanting to be an actor, hit the comedy clubs. Although he did lots of improv, it mustn't be forgotten that there were great routines in there as well. Here's his famous explanation of the Scots inventing golf. Here's my idea for a sport. I knock a ball in a gopher hole. Oh, you mean like pool? F*** off pool! Not with a straight stick, with a little f***ed up stick. I whack a ball that goes in a gopher hole. Oh, you mean like croquet? F*** croquet! I put the whole hundreds of yards away! Oh, like a bowling thing? No! Not straight, I put shit in the way! Like trees and bushes and high glass, so you can lose your fucking ball! Becoming a hit on the comedy circus back in the 1970s usually meant you were snapped up by TV executives. Williams was given his own comedy live special on HBO and appeared in various TV shows. Then came the big break, Mork and Mindy, where he played the extraterrestrial who came to Earth from the planet Ork and falls in love with Mindy. Most people don't actually realise that Mork began on Happy Days as the alien opposite the Fonz. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Remember me, Mork from Ork? You once called me the nutso from outer space. Mork and Mindy became a cultural phenomenon and its tale of interstellar romance captured the public's imagination. Yet in essence the show was built around Williams and his comedy gifts. I was talking to Mindy. Oh, Oh, how do you know my name? I'm making my business to get acquainted with every fox in town. 
A good way to do that is to leave dead meat on your porch. <laughs> this, I take it, is Merck? Oh, no, that's a great car. My name is Mork, and I know, I know. Mork and Mindy ran for four seasons. The pressure of fame and his give-it-all attitude to his comedy caused Williams to become an alcoholic and cocaine addict. But he cleaned up after the birth of his son and the drug-related death of his close friend John Belushi. All this made its way into his comedy, which he still continued to do after his success in Mork and Mindy. Here's a little warning sign if you have a cocaine problem. First of all, if you come home to your house, you have no furniture and your cat's going, I'm out of here, prick. Warning. <laughs> Number two. If you have this dream where you're doing cocaine in your sleep and you can't fall asleep and you're doing cocaine in your sleep and you can't fall asleep and you wake up and you're doing cocaine, bingo. <laughs> Number three, if on your tax form it says $50,000 for snacks, mayday. <laughs> you got to have a cocaine problem, smartass. As well as stand-up, Williams threw himself into movies. His big breakthrough came in Good Morning Vietnam, famously playing the DJ, entertaining the troops so far from home. It seemed like the role he was born to play. Good morning, Vietnam! Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Time to rock it from the Delta to the DMZ. Is that me or does that sound like an Elvis Presley movie? Viva Da Nang. Oh, Viva Da Nang. Da Nang me, Da Nang me. Why don't they get a rope and hang me? Hey, is this a little too early for being that loud? Hey, too late. Moving on right now. Big roles would continue with serious and not-so-serious movies like Dead Poets Society and Mrs. Doubtfire. He would win an Oscar for 1997's Goodwill Hunting, playing a wise-talking psychotherapist opposite Matt Damon's Trouble Genius. My wife used to fart when she was nervous. She had all sorts of wonderful little idiosyncrasies. <laughs> you know, she used to fart in her sleep. <laughs> Sorry I shared that with you. One night it was so loud it woke the dog up. <laughs> Although the Oscar success didn't faze him, as he would tell Graham Norton years later. Presumably that must be, uh, obviously, a career highlight. Did it change your life? No, for like a, a week. It was like, hey, congratulations, way to go. Goodwill hunting, way to go. Two weeks later, hey, Mark! <laughs> in the years after, Williams would continue to have huge success in movies, and yet there would be struggles in his private life, with a brief return to alcohol in 2003, and then once again later... There was also divorce, but through the highs and lows, he continued to want to do stand-up and claimed it was his life's blood. He was back touring towards the end of the noughties, making jokes about recent health problems. And the drug they gave me for the surgery was a drug called Propofol, which his nickname is Milk of Amnesia, an insane drug. I had that in a surgical situation. Michael Jackson was taking Propofol at home to sleep. <laughs> A doctor said taking propofol to sleep is like doing chemotherapy because you're tired of shaving your fucking head. It's like, no. Anybody listening to this is aware of what happened to Robin Williams, and there's nothing that I can add that's going to make any more sense of it. But that's not what this is about. This is a small little celebration of a brilliant comedian. And they have signs. They have big signs that say, you will not get into the kingdom of heaven. And I look at these geeks and go, are you going to be there? I'm not going. It ain't gonna be me with you. No.
Robin Williams, it's been a while, but we can still say RIP. He would have been 70 this week. And what a sheer delight and what a gift he was to the stage, to the screen. Up next, the great Mario Rosenstock on his favourite movie. Screen Time on News Talk. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we chat to someone well-known about their favourite movie. I am delighted to be joined by Mario Rosenstock, who has been purveying gift grub since 1998, I think it is. I also want to talk to him about his podcast, the Mario Rosenstock podcast. And of course, I want to talk to him about his favourite movie. Hi, Mario. How are you? Hi, John. Absolute pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having me. So listen, often with this slot, people will, you know, take a while and him and haw and go, you know what? I love this. I love that. And I'm like, just tell me your favorite movie. But you were right back with your choice. So tell our listeners what it is and why, if you would. Well, I'm used, I'm relatively used to being asked the question, what would be your favorite this or favorite that? Yes. You know, and, and I think a lot of people are favorite singing song, album and all this sort of stuff. So basically, I just answer the question because <laughs> I, I, I just answer the question, not because I am absolutely f- firm about this, but because you get to a stage in your life where you realize whether it's my favorite movie or not, I just love this movie so yeah. much that I, it's, it's, it's up there and capable of being in that realm. Yes. Um, so the and film. Without further ado, the film I've chosen, John, <laughs> is Barry Lyndon, oh. um, 1975, directed by Stanley Kubrick, and made um, principally uh, in Ireland. Yeah, and you have a personal connection to it. But just really quickly for you know younger listeners, I was born in 1975, so not everyone will be aware of it. But it's a sprawling epic, right? One of Kubrick's, I won't say lesser known movies, but just give us a quick idea of the plot. Okay, so um, first of all, it's 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 made by what some people would regard as the preeminent filmmaker in history, Stanley mm-hmm. Kubrick. I mean, if you consider that, um, if you consider that Steven Spielberg and uh, other masters of modern cinema regard him as the daddy, mm-hmm. Coppola, etc then you know how highly he is held in this regard. Um, He had just made 2001 A Space Odyssey, which if you watch to this day, still stands up as one of the greatest movies of all time. And he was looking for something else to do. He had made Clockwork Orange, the adaptation of the Anthony Burgess novel. And he was looking for something else to do. And he decided to do an adaptation of this epic sprawling novel by William Makepeace Thackeray called Barry Lyndon. And Barry Lyndon is a really simple story about a young, stupid, naive, fool of an Irish man who has ideas, who has, I think the, the word we'd use here is notions. He has notions. And he says, be Jesus, he's been like a little Michael Flatley. Be Jesus, <laughs> mammy, I want to raise high in society. And she goes, you'll never do it. You'll never do it. But he uses all his wit and he uses all his charms to try and climb higher up the social ladder. Years and years and years he tries. He travels abroad. He ends up marrying an, into, a, into a noble family. He marries a woman who has money. Her husband dies and she, he remarries her. And he climbs the ladder. And he climbs the ladder and he manages to get a title for himself and money. But his fatal flaws are gambling and the fact that he's a little bit silly and stupid and he keeps wanting to climb. And he spends too much money and he comes crashing down to earth. And it's a, a fateful morality tale of of greed and and foolishness and uh, it's a satire as well on, yeah. on 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 modern on on mores of of of, of greed and uh, avarice 
And uh, so it's a beautiful, long, very simple movie to understand. It's the easiest movie to follow in the world. It's just and, and it's and it's run by a voiceover who basically tells you what's happening as it happens. In fact, he tells you what's going to happen before it happens. Yeah. And that's not what the, the trick of the movie is. The trick in the movie is watching how what happens happens to this guy. And also the trick of the movie is the revolutionary way the movie looks when you watch it. You have never seen a movie that looks like this. Made in 1973 and 74, still to this day, you will not find a movie where the picture composition is as beautiful and as arranged and as premeditatively thought out as Kubrick did. He proves himself to be a master of his craft, of filmmaking and cinematography specifically, in this movie, Barry Lyndon, Made in Ireland. I feel like I'm talking to a film lecturer here on UCD. This is incredibly <laughs> impressive, Mario. Well, I'm so enthusiastic about it, really, John. I mean, this this film does so much because one of the one of the one of the things about the film is if you watch it, um, it's one of Kubrick's less uh, fated movies. Yeah, it received it was a flop when it came out. Uh, it didn't make money, and it was regarded by many critics as boring, slow, pedestrian, and dull. Yeah. Since then. Nearly 50 years later, it has slowly and slowly eked its way up the ladder until now, by many of the world's sort of knowledgeable movie people, it is regarded as perhaps Kubrick's finest movie up there with 2001 and Paths of Glory from from the 50s. Um, It's an extraordinary movie to watch in the context of even modern movies where everything has to happen so fast and every second of your time is filled with all sorts of things going on. This movie takes its time beyond belief. Every yeah. single, fr- his, his, his ambition was for the movie to make every frame, every time you see it, every time you look at the movie, it looks like an 18th century painting. Yeah. That every yeah. time you lay eyes on a scene, it's an 18th century painting. Yeah. He shoots in wide angle lenses so that everybody is small there are in the pictures like uh, you would see in a painting and it communicates that idea that we are all just puppets we're nothing we're little we're just we're just little fools who wander around the universe and you can see the big world around us and how the big world controls us and how the big world will control Barry in his yeah. stupid little efforts to try and get more money he's still just a little puppet who the world will the world will decide what it wants to do with Barry when it's ready yeah and and it's, it's superb yeah, well, extremely well put. And, and you know, it divides people. As you say, I was talking to a well-known broadcaster and businessman the other day. Let's just call him Bobby Kerr for the sake of okay, argument. Yeah, I, to- yeah. I told him you were choosing this movie. He goes, ah, oh, too boring, too boring. Well, that's because and- the greatest movie, that's because he believes the greatest movie is Insomnia. And it's not. <laughs> it's one of Robin Williams's worst movies. Well said. You should be on the radio with talk like that, Mario. <laughs> Listen, brilliantly described. And and I always say it's a sign of a good description when I feel like watching the movie after someone speaks about it. Your father had a brief flirtation with the cast. Is that right? That's right. Um, my, my, it was made. Uh, uh, it, there was a great documentary on Scon On in Aaron on TG Cahar. And uh, it, it outlined how Kubrick came to Waterford and he stayed at the... Um, Ardry Hotel in Waterford. Yeah. And he employed 100, 200 people part time in Waterford to be um, to make things and to make clothing and all this sort of stuff and to be extras. And he loved Waterford and he loved Ireland. And my father got a role as an extra on the film and he got a role as a British soldier 
Um, and I still to this day can't find him in the movie. And I know he's there somewhere. And there's a load of British soldiers and they're gathered around a big fight scene. And I go, is that him? Is that, yeah. him? Is that my dad? And I squint and I try to stop the, 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 the picture <laughs> yeah, yeah. and see if that's him. But um, I know he was in it and I know he was a British soldier. Um, was he paid? Oh, of course, yeah, they were yeah, all paid okay. really well. Like so, right. extras back then were would pay, were paid really well. So my dad would have only been about what twenty eight at the time, and um, you know, picking up a few extra quid on this this thing in Waterford, and you know, you would have been paid. I'd say, oh, I'd say you would be paid uh, the equivalent today of what two hundred, two hundred, two hundred and fifty a day. Okay, right. Yeah, nice so, little, nice little, uh, nice little few few quid. Decent cake, absolutely. Well, listen, a brilliant choice and brilliantly described. Just on the subject of movies and stuff like that, and I don't want to get into Glenn Rowe with you and all because you've discussed that ad nauseum. But a lot of people, you first came to prominence as an actor, and yeah. now you're something very different. You're this performer, yes. impressionist. Yes. Are you ever tempted? to go back and maybe do a play or if someone called to give you a part in the next oh, yes. Pat Short yes. movie, would you be yes, up for that? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, like, for example, I'm so jealous of Pat Short and how he's been able to straddle both the acting and the comedy aspect of his career. I was actually speaking to, on my podcast yesterday, I was actually speaking to Marco Halloran, oh, the, yeah. the, the, um, the writer of, of, of Adam and Paul and the writer of Garage. Garage, yeah. And I mean, I was looking at Garage and how brilliant Pat was in it and they were worried about putting Pat in Garage or Pat. They were worried for Pat about mm. a Garage, that he, would his audience go with him and would it destroy his career? And of course, the audience loved Pat so much that it didn't. And he was able to bring them by the hand and bring them into this world of Josie, who he played. And and yes, I would deeply love that. Um, I would love to get more involved in acting. However, I've always believed that what I do is acting. Yeah, it's, I'm course. writing my I am speaking. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to my own self. OK, the, 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 the uh, emphasis is on comedy. But often you do really serious bits in sketches that ultimately lead to comedy, but it's actually acting and performing. So it actually, I, I, a lot of the bug has been um, satisfied within me from yeah. the work that I have made for myself. Plus, I can write myself the best lines. Yeah, indeed you can. And you, you know, often so do. The, the danger of being an actor is, hi, Mario, they have a job for you because you were on John <laughs> Fardy's show and you said you want to be an actor. Well, we rang you and we have a job for a milkman. He has one line. And all he says is, hey, up, here's the milk. <laughs> and I go, well, I don't really want that. I said to John, I want to be an actor, not hey, up, here's the milk. Yeah, he's um, looking to straddle, I think, is the key I'm phrase. looking to straddle in a kind of a Pat Short way. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or a Tommy Tiernan way as well. Tommy gets great gigs on the acting, you know. Indeed, indeed. Listen, I want to talk to you about the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Like, mm. you're talking about the scratch being itched and all, what all you do. Yes. You're a busy man. Gift grub. Mm. I know what daily radio is like. And as much as you enjoy it, it is a grind. You're sitting it there is. going, what are we going to do today? We've got to make something funny for tomorrow. Yada, yada, yada. Yes. So I'm not saying you should have done it but why add to all that and do a podcast on top of it uh because i had a show on um on uh, the go loud network <laughs> uh, well, i don't know what we call it anymore but anyway um i had a show uh called mario sunday roast and i on got today the bug, fm on today fm and i got yeah. the bug i was bitten by the bug of mm -hmm. uh, presenting okay. and i always thought i always fancied myself as a potentially good listener because i've always i've always enjoyed I've always enjoyed being on both ends of a conversation, the doer and the, the listener as well. And uh, I believe I did. I, 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 I got better at listening and I, and, I, and I really enjoyed listening to other people talking to me and other people seem to enjoy it as well. And uh, so I said, I, I'm, the, show, the show was canned. And uh, I said, listen, just because my show is canned doesn't mean I'm stopping what I'm doing. And listen, a lot of, a lot of emails and a lot of tweets and a lot of, texts came through to me going Mario find some way to do the roast we love it 
And I did. And I am doing it. And uh, it's it's a grind. Uh, but as you say there, John, I'm used to a grind. And I believe an awful lot of things worthwhile in life are a grind. Yeah. Um, and for people who haven't listened to it, so, I mean, you're doing bits of comedy on it as well, sketches, yes, but by and new large... comedy. So brand new comedy on it every week. Yeah. And it's comedy that's slightly different to Gift Grub. Yeah, it's no, definitely. Slightly, um, it's slightly, I suppose, I, I don't like using the word edgier, but... but um, it's slightly more... So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I did a sketch where I was satirizing betting ads um, on the, 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 the absolute, you know, the way we're drowned in betting ads. Yeah. And I made, I made a really horrible betting ad. That's not something I could have seen myself doing on Today FM or indeed sure. News Talk because people would have kind of gone, oh, listen, we have a lot of betting people who do ads here. I don't think we need to be pissing them off, Mario. So, um, but, uh, but my own personal thing, I have a very strong personal opinion about betting ads. So I, I was able to do that because it's my podcast. So yeah. um, I can do what I want and, um, and I enjoy that aspect of it. And you also have interviews with great people like yes. you know, Jim Sheridan, Ray Darcy. Yes. Also, so that's a big part of it as well. You're listening to people. Dunphy, for... Dun- two, two interviews which great. people picked up on were, were a mixture of interviews like Dunphy, Ronan O'Gara, who was very, very interesting about his, mm. his mind, his mindset. And then it falls the next week with someone like Conor Moore. And Conor Moore is an impressionist like yes. myself, but he shared with me some really wonderful stories. And it can go wrong when two impressionists meet each other. Yeah. Because people can go, oh, my God, they're both trying to compete with each other and they both sound like dopes. Yeah. But Conor and I led each other into each other's world and we got a great episode out of Conor and he had a great time. And uh, so, yeah, it's a real mix of stuff with brand new comedy every week. And people can find that on all proper all platforms. podcast platforms. And it has a sponsor now as well, which is very It does, important. yeah. We're sponsored by Curry's PC World. And, you know, as Eamon Dunphy, you're sick of hearing him saying, this is Tesco, or <laughs> la, la, la. Tesco have, have won the best employee of the year for the fourth year in a row. And, like, this is the thing that I, I am a commercial animal. So yes. I, I, don't, I, I don't sell my soul, but I do believe that, commercial vehicles like, you know, commercial enterprises like Tesco and Curry's or whatever have a vital role to play in the independent broadcasting sector. And Curry's give me money. And I, and that means Patrick and I have money to actually put aside time to do this. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and to do proper stuff and to, to use proper studio space when we need to as well, when we're not using the wonderful Zencaster. Yes. And um, so I, I think it is brilliant that Tesco and all these people are getting involved. And of course, as you know, John, Podcasting, and as you know, through the Go Loud Network, the <laughs> podcasting is a very sexy area at the moment. Yeah. And you probably have people with British accents barging your door down going, can we speak to you about a podcast, John? Um, come, come, <laughs> come, come. Well, listen, in closing, there's one thing I want to ask you about Gift Grub, right? Yes. My, one of my favorite pieces of not just radio, but, you know, a thing I would listen to to make me smile and make me warm. And I'm sure you're tired of talking about this, but I'm going to battle through is you interviewing Roy Keane as Roy Keane. And to continue Thanks. to continue using, you know, a movie and TV analogy or a quote, you've got some set of balls on you, my friend from The Sopranos, to interview Roy Keane as Roy Keane. Like, I know you're a brave man and that's what you do and you thrive and those kind of moments. But was some part of you not terrified sitting down with Roy Keane, doing Roy Keane for Roy Keane? Yeah, no, some part of me was outside that door going, I'm not going in. <laughs> just, be, just before I went in, I knew he was behind the door and I nearly pulled out. I nearly okay. went, you don't have to open this door. Yeah. But actually the door was swung open for me by a young <laughs> PR girl and she just went out of the room and the look she gave me was, good luck with that. <laughs> and it was a big, huge room. And in the distance, I just saw him, his scaly, sort of sinewy character, his sinewy body. 
um, alone in the room. Of course, he was alone in the room. Nobody else. Because, of course, you know, it's, it's, it's like Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal Lecter was alone in the room when Clarice was there. She, uh... Uh, I felt like Starling. I felt like Clarice Starling. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, the thing that really, though, and I didn't know what to expect and I was really scared. But the thing that really fascinated me was he played along. And yeah. what was interesting was he played along. And this was one of the first times that he had done anything like this. Yeah. And he's much more the showman now, as you see in all his road he's shows. He's gone show he's, business now. This yeah. was still Roy Keane. He was still playing. Yeah. And this was Roy Keane. And he pretended, he played along with me being Roy Keane. So he was Roy Keane talking to another fella being Roy Keane. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and like, he didn't mind it. Yeah. And Jesus, and my balls were in my mouth. Fair enough. Uh, but uh, I got through it. Um, uh, I got through it and even after he squeezed the life out of my hand as well, uh, a proper right. handshake. As I said in the newspaper article I did, it was a handshake like a Velociraptor from, <laughs> uh, the, from Jurassic Park. But, um, you know, I mean, he just had that thing. And he had these green eyes, darting green eyes. The, the eyes kind of basically within three seconds were, were sizing you up as a prey. Right. So it was like how a, how a predator would size up a potential prey. <laughs> just, it would just get the load of its body three minutes, three seconds, just quick look before mm. it takes you out. Yeah. Um, and I'm just this fat walrus just being ready to be taken out. But he was, he was, listen, he's a fascinating character. We, we, there, there are very few people like Roy Keane mm. in the world. Yeah. In the world. I'm sure Zinedine Zidane maybe is somebody like this in the French vernacular. Sure. But Keane is so charismatic that even yeah. the Brits go, we don't have anybody like him. Yeah. Let's just get him. And you see when he's on Sky or whatever, you see the 4,000 tweets and refreshing every time he's on. Yeah. And people just mesmerized by the guy. And it's, it's funny because people slag you, slag me off on Twitter all the time, or, you know, the, the, the people who, who say nasty things about you and they go, just switched on to Today FM. Mario still doing Roy Keane <laughs> 20 years later. And I'm going, yes, of course I am. He's yeah. one of the most central figures in this in the world of football still. Believe me, I would not be doing Roy Keane if he was gone. Absolutely. I don't do Bertie anymore. No, no, I know. I know. Hey, no argument from me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, listen, this slot is usually 10 minutes. I've kept you nearly 20. His favourite movie is Barry Lyndon. You can hear him, of course, on Gift Grub every morning on Today FM. You can also hear him anytime you choose on the Mario Rosenstock podcast. My absolute gratitude to you, Mario. Thanks a lot. Not at all, John. I enjoy your show. Fair play to you. The United Kingdom was in a state of great excitement from the threat, generally accredited, of a French invasion. And the noblemen and people of condition showed their loyalty by raising regiments of horse and foot to resist the invaders. Their scarlet coats and swaggering airs filled Barry with envy. The whole country was alive with war's alarms. The three kingdoms ringing with military music. A clip there from Barry Lyndon, as chosen by Mario Rosenstock as his favourite movie. And my thanks to the very funny and very entertaining and very engaging Mario Rosenstock. That is it for this week. Next week, I'm going to be talking to Tom McCarthy. Yes, the man who gave us things like The Station Agent and Spotlight also acted in The Wire about his incredible new movie, still water so i'm looking forward to that i'll just remind you this show is available as a podcast every friday at 5 p.m on newstalk.com or the newstalk app powered by go loud it's on the radio every saturday at 6 p.m on newstalk it's a little later this week as it was last week due to the lions rugby game 
I'll also remind you I'm open all week long on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me screen time at newstalk.com. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and week ahead, and I will talk to you all next week.